got the psychologists looking at brains Tearing apart the structuralists, they're researching change And the scientists at the sense looking at stars Sizing up the universe, they're measuring Mars looking back into the past Welcome dear listeners, back to another podcast we're here with Arturo Araujo, David Basanta, and this is Pambe Bahia. Now, our guest this evening is uh, Alexander, better known as Sandy Anderson, who is head of the Mathematical Oncology at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Welcome, Sandy. Hello. So what we ask most of our guests to do is give uh, the listeners a little introduction to what your your past work has been and how you've ended up where you've ended up. So how did you end up in Tampa? Oh, that's a long, drawn-out story. <laughs> but the, the quick version of it is I was um, did my most of my education, undergrad education in Glasgow, and then I did a master's in mathematical biology in Dundee University. And I was drawn to that because I was interested in the idea that mathematics could somehow describe nature you know. so they had this course on modelling the origins of life which sounds very profound but that got me interested in dynamical systems theory in general which is you know, the idea that you can describe um, complex phenomena with very simple equations and so then I did a PhD there and I was uh, working on nematodes nematodes are little worms that um, attack potatoes in Scotland and in Ireland and those nematodes uh, are a real pest for those crops and they've tried like crazy amounts of pesticide and all sorts to to uh, get rid of them and so I was working at the Crop Research Institute building models of how nematodes find potatoes and how could we stop that and that led me um, inexorably towards cancer of course because the way that nematodes find potatoes is very close to the way that blood vessels find cancers. That led me to a, a postdoc in Bath where I worked on angiogenesis. And then after working on angiogenesis, I went back to Dundee and worked on tumour invasion. And the more I worked on cancer, the more I realised this is a problem that mathematics can address. And it can address it... And the biologists that I spoke to realised that those guys, they were looking at it as this one component interacts all these other components, but they didn't know how all of those at the same time were influencing each other. And I'm thinking, well, mathematics does that easily. We can describe the whole system and describe how all of those components interact and influence each other. And so that's when I realised that... Um, it wasn't enough to just work on cancer in a maths department in Scotland. Uh, I needed to go and work with clinicians and experimentalists. And it was through Bob Gattenby, who's a, a radiologist, who had been working with on and off, who was this unusual mix of a clinician that cared about models, that cared about mechanism. And he uh, said to me, it was, I think it was a conference, the ACR conference, which is the American Association of Cancer Research, back in, I think it was 96. And he said to me, one day I'd like to create a mathematical oncology department. And he'd written this article with Philip Meaney, who you've also had on the show, 
saying the importance of mathematics and, and what it can say for cancer research. And so he said to me at this meeting, let's create this thing, would you direct it with me? And of course at the time I was like, sure, of course, no problem, <laughs> thinking it would never happen. But then, you know, almost 10 years later, he phones me and says, so there's this possibility of a department of mathematical oncology, are you interested? So of course I said yes, and I was ready to leave anyway. And so that's how we ended up in Tampa. You know, Moffitt took a chance. And in many ways, they're leading the world. They created a mathematical department inside a cancer centre. It's kind of unique. Yeah, it's very impressive that you showed up with, I believe, two other people, and now you have a department of how many? So right now we have a, we have five <laughs> faculty in the department. And, of course, our very own Dave Basanta <laughs> is one of those pioneering faculty that led the charge. Um, and, of course, Kaja, Heiko... Bob Gattenley and myself. And then we've got a whole bunch of postdocs and students and interns. In fact, I don't actually know how many the numbers are, but <laughs> it's probably on the order of 30, 25, I, I'm not sure. That's fantastic. And I guess to, to kind of emphasise the importance of uh, collaboration that you guys have, you, you have this annual workshop. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... You know, integration, so the department's called Integrated Mathematical Oncology. And the whole point of the I and IMO is really to bring together different disciplines. So, you know, we realised, I realised, that when I was working with biologists, that those guys have a really predefined worldview on what they think's going on. And it's, of course, it's natural, because you're brought up with all these beliefs about how things occur and how those processes evolve and I think what we bring to that is you know a naive and questioning mentality so we don't really understand a lot of it and we have a very logical view and so if something influences something we ask why does it do that and almost every time when you ask why the answer is we don't know and the more I realised we don't know was the answer the more I thought well we need to find out Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's not to say the onus is on biologists, and that's why the integration is important, is because I also was building models that were somewhat abstract and generalised. Um, and these guys are, of course, working on, you know, factor, you know, growth factor X, TGF beta, in prostate cancer, and I'm calling it growth factor in solid tumour growth. So the specificity is important, and those, the way those cells interact the way the environment influences that is very specific to each cancer and that I didn't realise until I started working much more closely and so one of the things that I saw was that the experiments that the experimentalists were doing started to change as we as we collaborated and the models that I was building started to change and together we went somewhere different something that neither of us could have done alone and so it's really the you know the sum of the parts really is you know a greater whole, and so the eye is about creating a whole, a complete whole, and that's something I'm really passionate about because it's kind of like an exciting um, new discipline. It's not just about mathematics or um, oncology. It's about this new way to view an old problem. 
right? And, you know, this this experimentalist I worked with, Vito, used to say, when he spoke to me, put on his mathematical specs. <laughs> and he would look at the very same experiments with these new glasses that would give him this different take on the exact same thing that he looked at, right? But he would look at it as the cell biologist. And I would look at it as... You know the kind of logical, very naive, straight-thinking mathematician, but it, together then we created this different understanding. And you know it's fun, it's exciting, and that's the whole I and the IMO. And that's really what made me think that the workshops were so important because, um, you know, when we first arrived in Moffat, a lot of people thought, "Oh, you're stati- statisticians, or you're, you know, bioinformaticians. You analyze data." Or you know they had this. You do you do populations, don't you? You just look at how populations change, and we're like, no, we're trying to understand mechanism. Oh, molecular mechanism was the the retort. You know, what do you mean by that? I'm like, well, no, I'm talking about how the cells functionally change and interact and alter their environment, and their their response to that is no, that's not mechanism. It's molecular mechanism. I said, but mechanism isn't tied to the molecular aspects, there's so many other scales that are involved so that's the the key um, change there was to open their eyes to what we could do, but the other big shock for me with coming to Moffat was um, clinicians don't speak to experimentalists so here we have a giant hospital that treats thousands of patients and we have these really cool um, experimentalists that do all sorts of fancy experiments, you know, genetic, cell culture, mouse models, and everything in between. And they do this, and it's like translational, in quotes. And so the translational aspect is we use the drug they use in the clinic, and we see how those cells behave, how those animals respond to that. But then the clinician is using that drug or a different drug um, and hasn't even spoke to this person who's actually using the same stuff because there's just this divide Mm -hmm. between the clinic and basic science and so what I realised was what we do which is essentially um, create a way to look at that complexity uh, and connect it with the human situation so how do you scale mouse to man or how do you take results from cell culture and make it um, you know, impact the way a tumour is going to respond to combination therapies. And it's not just a case of, okay, there's like you know, a thousand cells in the dish and there's 10 million cells in a person, so we just scale up. It's not as simple as that. It's much more sophisticated. So I think that's one of the key things I realised was we could help bridge that divide. And the other thing is that Clinicians ultimately are the guys that make the treatment decisions. Mm-hmm. If we want to alter the way we change, we treat cancer, that's who we have to speak to. We have to convince those guys. So the workshop's about bringing together clinicians, experimentalists and modelers into teams to try and drive um, a new perspective on you know, some aspect of cancer. So the focus of each works, workshop kind of 
yeah, hints at where you should go. So in the first year we targeted therapy, in the second year it was metastasis. And then last year, well this year, well last year actually it was, because it was December last year, it was on personalised medicine. So, you know, how can mathematical models help with that? Well, I think the key thing is that you've got someone with, with a targeted drug and you've got a clinician with a patient that has these mutations and so, okay, give the targeted drug to that patient. But maybe you can give that drug and you can give them a chemo, a more generic drug, or maybe you can have a holiday and not give them that drug right away. Or maybe you can give the two drugs simultaneously. How do you know which of those options is the right choice? That's where the modelling really helps. It, it gives you that angle on what the possibilities are and what's good and what's bad. But that's not to say that um, we've got all the answers, right? So these are ultimately caricatures of reality. They're not the real deal. They're a gross simplification. But, you know, models should be a simplification of reality. That's what their job is, is, is to just describe it in the most minimal sense what the real thing is so you understand it better. And that's what I think we offer. We offer a way to understand something that's incredibly complex. Sure, we might be wrong, but sometimes we might be right. It's worth the risk, I think. Yep. Uh, so I was actually uh, fortunate enough to experience these people taking part in what they lovingly refer to as a hackathon. So basically you have these biologists, you have the medics, and you have mathematicians or theoretical scientists yeah. all put together in a room and effectively left to stew for quite some time. And uh, the idea is that they put together a project and then they present it and you have a winner. So what was the outcome of this year's uh, workshop? Yeah, so, so the whole point of that is that it's meant to be... So this is from past experience. It's meant to be intense. It's meant to be high pressure. Because I, I find that people actually are very creative when put under that situation. So it's that kind of... We're going to put you on the boil and you've got this period of time. So people are not frightened then to like take a risk, mm -hmm. you know. So you might be wrong, but there's nothing wrong with that, you know. It, it, could, it, it could be wrong, but there could be a, a hint of some truth in there. And so that um, intense aspect of it really, um, one, it encourages um, dedication in many sense from, from the IMO crew. Because those guys have really got to drive it. They'd go beyond the call. They stay almost all through the night. They work way too long and too many hours. But it's because they believe in it. They, you know, this is in many ways this exemplifies the the true spirit of IMO. It is really about this, um, you know, intense brainstorming exercise that results in unusual views that could be useful. And so um, I've kind of structured it in such a way as that we make sure that it's not impossible. So it's four and a half days. This uh, question, which is let's just kind of asked for in that first day, then drives subsequent uh, days. So then the next day I ask them to present um, some you know, update on how their work's developed. And then in this, this year we actually did this idea that they should present specific aims for a grant and what that means is 
given that they were going to give a prize, the winning prize, I should say the winning prize is actually $50,000. It's not a trivial amount of money. That if they get that prize, how would they spend it? And what would be their motivation? So, so it forces a very logical type of thinking on the group. And it really constrains them to come up with some cool result. But I have to say, generally, it's a, a done deal who wins it because it's so obvious at the end who really led and who was clear. But I have to say, this year, it was damn close. A very on Dr. Basanta's team was very close. <laughs> that would have been two years running for him. Yeah, which would have been spoiling him a bit too much. You know, he couldn't get his head out the door in that case. <laughs> So the, you said the theme for this particular workshop was personalised medicine. Um, yes. How likely do you think it is that you know, sometime in the future we will actually be able to tailor medicine to an individual? So, I mean, in general, I'm not sure how much I can comment on, but for cancer, I can definitely comment. So, you know, one of the things that we've been... We always use this analogy, which is, um, in some sense, it's flawed, but it's a useful analogy which is in weather forecasting. So, you know, in a way, when we predict the trajectory of a hurricane, right, then we're kind of tailoring a mathematical model to predict the future outcome of where that hurricane's going to go. And so how do you do that? You take current information on the state of the weather, you take information about the terrain, you take... um, you know, information probably even from the hurricane itself, if you can get it, and you predict forward in time what's going to happen. And so that's what we'd really like to do for um, for cancer, is say, okay, this patient, um, this is their cancer, this is the current information we have, we've got imaging, we've got molecular information on it, we've got pathology... And we know some historic things about this disease. So is there a way that we can take all that information, integrate it, and predict forward in time what that cancer is going to do? And more importantly, can we predict how that cancer is going to respond to treatment and therefore optimise the best treatments for that patient? And I really think that is possible, and it's possible in the not-too-distant future. The, The big roadblock is not going to be the models, it's going to be the clinic, it's going to be the clinicians themselves. Because there's so much red tape in trying to translate novel findings into clinical decisions that it's almost impossible. So even for us to touch or look at a sample, right, we have to apply for IRB approval. And this process is long and arduous, and it's almost like enough to put you off even trying it. And then when you do do it, it's only approval for the very specific thing that you asked for. Mm -hmm. So if we build a model, we make some predictions, and that prediction or that suggestion for about how you should treat is outside of the scope of that, you have to go through the whole process again. But we're going to do it. We're going to keep trying to do that. And I think with um, the easiest way to make that happen is to use uh, drugs that are currently approved. Yep. So, you know, um, one of the things that Moffitt has in place is, is called the Moffitt Pathways. Mm-hmm. And the pathways are 
essentially like a, a set of questions where if you answer it a certain way, you go down a certain path. And so that pathway is very much directed by um, the clinicians who help to define it. And so it's like you might have, do you, is this an ER positive cancer for breast? Is this patient you know, beyond the menopause. So there's certain things that really push you down a certain route. But see, at the end of that route, okay, you can treat with one of 20 drugs, right? And the treatment for each of those 20 drugs is predefined and set. Imagine we could combine those drugs in a smart way. Imagine that we could change the scheduling or the dosing or we we could combine them. And we combine them such that we know it'll be better for that patient's cancer. That's where I think we'll have immediate impact. And what's interesting is that's exactly where the winning teams for the last two years have focused their energies, including our very own Dr. Basanto, right? Which is to, to say, these are the current treatment strategies. How can we do it better? And the thing is, it's not actually that hard to do it better provided they'll agree to actually implement those strategies. So it could actually happen within the next couple of years. I mean, it's, it's not that far away. But it's going to take a lot of effort from us to convince these guys that these models aren't just, you know, pie in the sky, but they're actually saying something useful. And that's where we have to lean on our experimental colleagues to really test some of these ideas in, in cells, in mice, you know, in culture, whatever it is, to, to sort of say, yes, it works, or no, it doesn't, go back and refine it. I think, you know, we were discussing today in, in Moffat, in the collaboratorium over coffee, about, in a way, that it's kind of frightening that one day we're going to ultimately make a clinical decision based on a mathematical model. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for that? And that's the whole reason why I came to Moffat. I want to make a, dis- a clinical impact. I want to change those decisions. And I want to change it for the better. Or else, why are we even doing it? We're just, it's like, you know, academic masturbation. <laughs> but it is. What's the point? So that's my motivation. And I really believe that we can do it. And I think the workshops are really a key to making that happen. I understand one of the aspects of your research looks at this concept of cancer evolving. Can you tell us how that happens? So, yeah, so one of the big deals about cancer, which has been kind of swept under the carpet for a long time, is it's a very heterogeneous disease. So what do I mean by it's a heterogeneous disease? So fundamentally what it means is not all cancer cells are equal. Right, so... You could pick a random cancer cell from a tumour and another one and compare them and they would behave differently, they would proliferate differently, they would migrate differently, they would have different genetic mutations and they would respond to different environmental stimuli, like if I drop them into low oxygen or I put them in low growth factor or I hit them with a drug. Any of those things, the cells behave differently. And so why is that? Well, it's because this is an evolving system. Those cancer cells are subject to mutation. They change, they evolve. And because they um, are heterogeneous, they can be selected upon. 
So basically, as the environment um, selects or as treatment selects upon this heterogeneous tumour population, you're left behind with a tumour that's different from fundamentally the way it was before it started. You've wiped out you know, 80% of the cells and left behind 20% that are just different. And they're different in that they don't respond to the drug. They might divide faster or slower. They might migrate differently. You know, one of the things that we've tried really hard to understand in, in IMO in general is how is it um, a heterogeneous cancer can be understood and how can we control that heterogeneity or in some sense exploit it because if it's heterogeneous that means that not all cells are equal some are actually better than others can we enrich for the good guys and suppress the bad guys and you know the idea that there's a good cancer cell might sound a bit crazy but good cancer cells are those guys that are similar to the normal cells which they came from they still listen to the signals from the normal tissue. They still obey all the rules of there's not enough nutrients so you shouldn't divide. Or, you know, there's an immune cell there that wants to attack you and don't pretend that you're not a bad guy. <laughs> so things like that. There's a lot of um, those cells still in cancer. And that's one of the big issues with the way we treat cancer. Uh, so, you know, this kind of... Um, basically go in there guns blazing attitude, you know the magic bullet view of cancer is almost like the worst way to treat cancer and the reason it's the worst way to treat it is because what you do is you treat until resistance occurs so you wipe out every possible sensitive cell and leave behind only the nasty shit so if you leave behind the nasty shit what's going to happen you've got a more aggressive cancer it's untreatable and the outcome's inevitable it's bad news. So the parallel here is like with uh, bacterial infection. So the ones that now are resistant to antibiotics no longer can be killed by them. Yeah. It's the same idea. Very similar idea. So what are the challenges of interdisciplinary research? Because obviously you rely on doctors and biologists to work with you. I think the biggest challenge is just being able to talk to each other. So, you know, the dialogue is a big part about what we do. And so, you know, it requires patience on our part and being um, making an effort to explain some of the more sophisticated ideas to those guys in words that they understand. And it requires the biologists and the clinicians to also kind of, you know, babysit us a little bit and say, it's like being on a date, <laughs> right? You know, right at the beginning of the date, you're kind of like feeling each other out a little bit, trying to suss each other and, and you know, do you really think that way? Are you somebody that I'm interested in? How do you feel about this? What's your view on that? And then eventually you get to a point where you feel relaxed and you're like, okay, I think I can actually say what I really think now. And I think that in many ways is like the dialogue that we have with our biological colleagues and clinical colleagues is that to begin with, we're a little bit defensive, we're a little bit, you know, I'm not sure if you really understand what I'm about. And, and they're kind of like, you couldn't possibly model the complexity of what I do. But eventually we get to a place where that dialogue is useful for each other and it's actually empowering. And, and once you get to that point, then interdisciplinary research is breathtaking, it's, it's exhilarating, 
it's it's why I do the research that I do. So I suspect you might have already asked the re- uh, answered the next question, but do you think biology really needs mathematical modelling? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of resounding yes. And what's interesting about that yes is that there's a lot of biologists who would answer that no. But I think it's because they don't know what we have to offer. You know, I mentioned earlier about this idea that biologists create their own worldview of the system that they're working on. And in many ways, they're, they're modelers. They're not mathematical models, they're biological modelers of their, in their own way. So they create a representation of this system that they're working on. And maybe it's taken them years to, to bring together all the different pieces in this bigger picture. And they'll even draw you a diagram and it'll have these proteins and they'll have connections between them and those connections will be almost individual experiments and it'll look really sophisticated and it's kind of beautiful what they've created what they've managed to do with experimentation alone in fact it always amazes me that they've managed to get that far because one of the fundamental problems is that intuition isn't enough linear thinking isn't enough it's not enough to say that you know factor A influences factor B and it gives you this result because factor B may also influence A and the result may influence A and there's this complex feedback that you can't possibly intuitively understand and that's where the beauty of mathematics comes to the fore you know it relishes in that kind of complex feedback it's brilliant at describing um, you know very sophisticated interactions with really quite simple equations and so um, that naive um, kind of linear thinking is important but really there's this non-linearity that's just natural and it occurs in the in the world that we're, we live in you know, it's the reason why we can't predict weather uh, until we started incorporating those sorts of features. It's the reason why uh, when you see a pattern and you think that you're going to expect that you, you see the next uh, step in that pattern to occur, that it doesn't occur. It's, so it's, it's the noise, it's the, it's the stochasticity in the system that causes that um, you know, intrinsic variation in the dynamics. And so that may make you think, oh, it's chaotic, it's random, it's, it's just noise, but it's not. There's actually an underlying simple system which can describe all of that complexity with a limited number of variables. And, you know, that's one of the things that really got me interested in mathematics, was the idea that a complex system uh, can be described by a very simple set of equations. And the reason it can be described that way is because the feedbacks, because of the non-linearities. So I think, you know, that's a, a crucial point here. Uh, this is a nice incendiary question here. Don't know who came up with this, but who knows more about cancer, doctors or biologists? Question. That's a controversial question. So I think that each offers their own view. If you'd asked me this a year ago, I'd have said biologists no more. But we we have this um, student Derek uh, Derek Park who's working, shadowing a clinician. 
So he's spent um, almost six months with her and he's been telling me regularly what he does with her day-to-day when he meets patients and how she makes decisions. And it's changed my view. I mean, they have a tough call. They've got to make a decision on how to treat a patient within a week. They, they get limited information. They've got some historic perspective, you know, and that, you know, that, that kind of comes back to that point of, are you ready to make a clinical decision? Are you ready to make a decision on a patient's life? They do it every day with many patients. You've got to respect that. And, you know, most of the time they get it right. So they know something we don't. I guess you guys have a very unique viewpoint in that respect. Um, So the final question we have is, if you can do so much in a a short-term workshop, why don't we have those sorts of workshops every week? (laughs) There are a lot of people around the table who took part in that particular (laughs) workshop who are now laughing. (laughs) Well, first of all, it would kill everyone. probably lead, lead to several marriage breakups. It's, it's too intense. It's, it's like, um, I don't know, I can't think what it would be like. It's like the most intense experience you've ever had. And the thing is that the more you get involved in it, the more you get back from it, but you can't keep that pace up. You know, it's not, we're not superhuman. And, you know, you cut corners and you make simplifications and the workshop has its place, but it's not the answer it's not the the, the, what it is it's a kickstarter it's like you know and the the reality of taking that research that's done in the workshop and turning it into a practical um, real project that's going to pay dividends is is a big leap and you know as I'm sure people around this table know the difference between what they did in the workshop and what became the reality of what they're going to try and do with that is very different. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Sandy. It's been uh, great for us to hear you describe your work. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And good night. Bye. just a boy and I am just a girl. Somehow we managed to stick to spinning words. You were just a boy and I am just a girl. It's a wonder we don't all fall off this spinning world. By our ologists studying cells Tearing bar chromosomes to DNA spirals And the English litologists using all their words To break apart their sentences with subjects and verbs But you are just a boy and I am just a girl And somehow we managed to skip to spinning words You are just a boy and I am just a girl It's a wonder we don't all fall off Tickling babies 
television sets with mostly naked ladies and a high-speed internet with online dating and the New York Jets with all the rivalry hating. News reporters digging up clean dirt, ecologists trying to save the earth, corporations say they're all going green. Well, we'll believe it when we really see it. Took a very own Dave Besant uh, uh, when he was first <laughs> being interviewed to, to do a postdoc in Dundee to a Thai restaurant. One of my favourites, they actually do pretty good vegetarian food if you're ever there, it's Rama Thai. So we go in, giant menu, we're looking at the options, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have the pad thai, make it extra spicy. David says, I'll have the omelette. And I was like, David, you're joking, aren't you? He says, no, I feel like being a bit different. <laughs> I'm like, that's the sort of thing that my mother-in-law would order when she goes to a Thai restaurant because she thinks the food's dirty. It's not something that you do in a Thai restaurant. <laughs> Dr. Basanta's view on Thai cuisine. Needless to say, we've been to the Thai restaurant many times and he's had proper Thai food. But in, in that early experience, he wasn't quite ready yet for the full-blown Thai experience. You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully that wasn't too bad.